0: This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a 1,000 miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts. Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com, and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that helps launch and accelerate careers in business roles in tech. Join one of Skillful's upcoming cohorts to learn what you need to know and from who you need to know. Skillful recently released their core sprint for January. Their core sprint is great for business generalists, anyone looking to get into biz ops and build their SQL and problem solving skills. They also have two additional sprints that will be dropping soon. Their strategic finance sprint for finance professionals looking to learn how to level up their experience for a strategic finance role and their product strategy sprint for professionals who currently work cross-functionally with a product team. Or if you want to understand how product strategy and business strategy intersect, no prior product experience is required. So early bird applications for their core sprint, that's the one geared towards business generalists, are now open. Use the exclusive code, Early Bird 2021, if you apply before December 1st. Head to joinskillful.com, also it's located in the show notes, before December 1st for access to an exclusive early bird pricing. hello and welcome to the consumer vc i am your host mike gelb and on this show we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products if you're enjoying this content you could subscribe to my newsletter the consumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox thank you charlie Hanna, for the intro to our guest today denise woodard CEO and founder of Partake Foods. Partake Foods produces super delicious cookies that are made with real, healthy, and safe ingredients that everyone can enjoy. They're gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, and free of the top 14 allergens. I must say, they're absolutely delicious. We discussed the inspiration Denise's daughter had of her founding Partake, as well as the overall origin story, that decision of leaving her job in Coca-Cola, how she managed to get into grocery stores, which can be so difficult to do, and as well as how she raised capital and how the business changed and evolved during COVID. Without further ado, here's Denise. Denise, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I am doing well. I'm so excited to be here. This has been a long time in the works, so I'm excited to have this conversation.
0: Long time in the works. And thanks so much again for bearing with me these past couple of months. Really excited to, uh, uh, to have you on. I wanted to first start at the very beginning. What attracted you to the wonderful world, the crazy world of CPG? And how did you kind of go about getting a job working in big corporate at, uh, at Coke?
1: Sure. So I think the thing that I love about CPG is seeing how a brand can have such an effect on people and, like, how create, like, whether it's like, packaged soft drink when I was at Coca-Cola, like how it can inspire moments of happiness and also see like how brands can do so much to inspire goodness in the world through social mission efforts. And I like the fact that it was like tangible products that I was working on. I feel like I have a lot of friends who work in tech and I don't fully understand what they're doing a lot of the times, like cookies were not that complicated um, or beverages. And so I started my career at Coca-Cola in 2008 and I had a variety of sales and marketing related roles across their trademark brands, across multicultural marketing. And then my last role there was working in their venturing and emerging brands group, which is this amazing experience where I got to work on a lot of the entrepreneurial brands that Coke had either acquired or invested in like Honest Tea and Zico Coconut Water.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing part of that experience working in Coke variety of capacities and also with the brands that they um, acquired Zico. And I'm just, we're going to be having Mark on here on the show in about a month, which I'm super stoked about um, as well. That's that's super cool though. So I'd imagine maybe you got the, the hint of entrepreneurship maybe by that experience of working with some of the acquisitions or part of the product development team. What I guess sparked you um, to start Partake Foods?
1: Sure. So I think I had always had like a very entrepreneurial spirit. My dad's an entrepreneur. I always had a side gig, even when I worked at Coke. I had an eBay business that did six figures. I had a ticket brokering business at some point. So I always had like something going, but never anything scalable that was worth leaving my career for. And then my daughter came along and she's six now, but right around her first birthday, we learned that she has a lot of food allergies. She's allergic to tree nuts, eggs, corn and bananas and partake came to be in the summer of 2016, or at least the idea came to be um, when our nanny, who has some equity in the company, was tired of hearing me complain about all the things I couldn't find in the allergy friendly snack space and challenged me to do something about it by starting a company. Wow,
0: that's amazing. So, so, so very inspired by your child. That's awesome in terms of just seeing and understanding that there wasn't options that were there for her, especially sweet options what were your first steps to starting Partake? And when did you realize that, hey, or or was it maybe off the bat that you realized that, hey, this this could be something big and maybe how did you kind of navigate leaving the decision to leave Coke?
1: Sure, so... It was kind of something out of a movie. Uh, The following weekend, we were in line at the zoo and I was telling my husband, Jeremy, you won't believe the idea that Martha had. She thinks I should start an allergy-friendly food company. And this guy who was in line in front of us turned around and was like, it sounds like you're on to a great idea. Are you familiar with the Start Something Challenge? And the Start Something Challenge is a startup uh, pitch competition for businesses that are based in New Jersey. It's sponsored by Blackstone and J.P. Morgan um, and a group called the Rising uh, Rising Tide Foundation. And so I entered the Pitch competition. That was a Saturday afternoon. The deadline to enter was like that Monday at midnight. I incorporated an LLC, which I named Vivi's Life LLC because I didn't really understand what we were going to do other than make Vivi's life easier, my daughter. Um, And I entered the competition with an idea and we won. And so that gave me some confidence, but what it also gave was local press. And the last thing I needed was Coca-Cola to see me in the news, like local woman starts allergy friendly food company. So I had to scramble to tell my boss and the leadership team what I was doing. And the verdict that came down was you can do what you want in your spare time, um, but once you have an actual product that you're selling, there's a conflict of interest there. And so it was such a blessing in disguise because that gave me the kick in the butt that I needed to know that I would have to leave my job. And so I left Coke in August of 2017 once we actually had products to sell. But I spent the next year moonlighting, working up at the crack of dawn, working seven days a week, um, trying to find out where we were gonna make the product and how we were gonna make the product. So those were the two things I needed to tackle first because I didn't want to leave a career that I loved unless I knew we were starting a scalable business.
0: That's amazing. So I think that that's also great to know that insight too, that it's right when you release or launch a product is when there's that conflict of interest and you actually then would have to kind of cut ties with Coke, um, um, and not being a, uh, employee there anymore. And so that's great that you knew that, okay, I can actually work on this on the side for actually quite a long time because, you know, pre-launch, there's so much that goes into it. How did you go about, for example, like experiment with ingredients and and taste testing and, 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 find, and finding the right co-packer?
1: From an experimenting with ingredients and taste testing perspective, Martha, our nanny, and I went and spent an ungodly amount of money at Whole Foods and failed horribly in the kitchen. And then I started to realize why so much of the gluten-free stuff was made with rice flour and xanthan gum and a ton of sugar. It's kind of hard to formulate without that unless you're a professional. And so through a cold LinkedIn message, I was able to find a product developer who was able to help bring my vision to life, who we still work with to this day. And then on the co-packer front, it was challenging because there aren't very many top eight allergen-free co-packers that exist in the U.S., and they get to be choosy about how they who they work with. And, and the one that I had my heart set on was working with large international food companies. And so convincing them to work with a woman with an idea who was cold calling them um, and still had a full-time job was definitely a challenge that was not for the faint of heart.
0: It reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with uh, Sarah LaFleur, the founder of MM. LaFleur, and she was saying how, yeah, to, to like convince manufacturers to kind of be on board and kind of give you a shot, it's really hard. What were some of the tactics that you, that you kind of did?
1: I don't know if I would recommend this, but I ran a Kickstarter campaign because I figured if I could go back to them and say, look, there's hundreds of people who want this product, it would give me a little more credibility. And thankfully, that worked. Um, and we were able to negotiate a couple of smaller production runs where we could mix flavors. So we launched with three flavors. And now we're doing dedicated production runs of one flavor. But they allowed me to combine three. And they allowed me to do you know one shift a quarter for the first couple of quarters. And, and so to see if we could build up a real business before we started talking about entering into a longer term relationship. So I, I think it was a bit of protection on both sides because they probably didn't want to enter into a long term agreement with me anyway, at the time. Um, so it was really nice. We able, were able to do the Kickstarter, get some early adopters that way, get some initial small, a small amount of brand awareness. And it gave us the credibility with the co-packer to get them to agree to work with us.
0: That's amazing. That's great. How did you also approach on the brand and marketing side um, very early on? What were you going for?
1: Sure. So I wanted to create a brand that satisfied the needs that I, like the white space that I felt that existed when I was looking for products for my daughter. And so the places where I felt like there were gaps were finding a product that tasted good, not just good for allergy friendly, but just good, um, that had ingredients that I could actually understand that I felt good about giving to her. And that came from a brand that was cool enough that people without food allergies would willingly eat it. I think one of the things with food allergies and dietary restrictions is you often feel excluded and you often feel isolated because you can't participate or pun intended, partake in social events because you're not able to eat the foods that are served. And then when you bring something that no one else is aware of because it's a food allergy product, for lack of better words, it makes you feel even more isolated. And so I wanted to create a brand that made products that tasted good, that had ingredients you could feel good about, but that appealed to people with or without dietary restrictions. Through hundreds of demos, we started to realize there was a really high barrier to entry with the food allergy consumer. So they weren't trying the product anyway, because they we weren't in thousands of stores yet. They hadn't heard about us in their local groups. And, and so thankfully, there were these much broader consumer groups that were early adopters, moms who needed a school safe snack, even if their kid didn't have food allergies. This like health conscious millennial customer who just wanted a cookie that tasted good, that had ingredients they could understand. And then lots of other underserved and underrepresented communities outside of those with food allergies, women, minorities, people who wanted to support a Black-owned business. And and so through the the hundreds of demos that we did pre-COVID, we were able to understand who was adopting our product and why they were. And food allergies was not like the thing that came up over and over again, surprisingly.
0: But but that's also a a good thing, right? Yes, that's what we wanted. How did you approach the launch of Partake Foods? Were there specific sales channels that you were in or about to be in? What was the approach there?
1: I wish I could say it was more sophisticated, but it was me pulling up to a storage unit in Jersey City um, and filling up the back of my SUV with cookies and driving to a hit list of natural food stores across the city. And I sold cookies out of my car for about nine months and did demos nearly every day to understand what was driving consumers to buy our product, how we stacked up against competition. Because I think I knew with not much of a network in VC and without any kind of Individual family wealth that it was going to be really hard for me to raise money. And so I couldn't make any mistakes that would be so big that they'd put me out of business. So I needed to make sure that I understood the foundational elements of the business. And so I wanted to start small. So there was no splashy launch, which was a little defeating. Like you, you read these stories on like a lot of the industry trade publications about, you know, a company launches in this huge chain or with this huge amount of funding. And so it kind of felt like an outsider looking in because we didn't have those things, but I think it made our, our business stronger to, to not have those.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That's also just super cool that you were just that hustle of selling cookies out of your car for nine months, doing demos every day, validating the product, being there, not actually hiring anyone to actually do the demos, you doing it yourself. That's that's amazing. And what I guess was the reaction from the natural goods kind of community and some of the uh, stores that you were in?
1: I think um, we're really fortunate to be based in the New York City area because a lot of the store managers and buyers have an appreciation for like hustle and grit and whether or not they thought I was going (laughs) to succeed or they were into the product, they were willing to give me a chance. And I think the fact that I would like show up with my demo, like sell the product in and be willing to do a demo right there, like gave me like for lack of better words, like street cred with them. And so they wanted to see us win. And so the natural foods market in New York was so receptive to our our brand. And I'm so thankful that we started the brand here because I think about other places in the country where there isn't that network of independent stores where you can kind of go sell in one off and start to validate your proposition.
0: And that's great too, because if you have that buy-in too, from store owners that people want to see you win, then your product might be placed you know, on shelves, maybe a little bit better than, um, uh, than other products. Right. And, um, that's amazing too, since, um, you obviously had these very personal relationships as you were doing demos, you know, every day for nine months. That's, that's terrific. When did you decide that, Hey, maybe we need some funding. Uh, we should maybe raise around or, or start to meet investors. When did it make sense in order to do so?
1: So it was after I had emptied my 401k, sold my engagement ring, and maxed out all of my credit cards. And so we bootstrapped the business as long as we possibly could. And then we went out and raised a friends and family round. We ended up raising around $400,000 that came in over the course of probably six months and came in, you know, five and $10,000 checks and from friends and colleagues and former colleagues and just like a wide group of people in our network. And that's what gave us the money to continue to scale the business. At that point, we had gotten acceptance into a region of Whole Foods and into Wegmans. And so it was getting more expensive to run the business. And I couldn't do all the demos myself at that point. And so like we had to, to raise some money to be able to support the growth.
0: Wow, that's amazing. What were maybe the biggest reasons why an investor would uh, would pass early on?
1: You know, that was the thing that was most frustrating. Nobody really ever gives you a no. It was just like a not right now or come back after you hit this threshold or like. And there was also like, then when I did get a no, it was like feedback that was so polarizing. Some people would be like, the category is too crowded. And then other people were like, category is not big enough. And so like, it, I don't, there was no like overwhelming reason that people were not investing.
0: Do you ever find that when it comes to angels or maybe first check in of the really small rounds of CBG that there isn't that much supply? Like there isn't a lot of investors or there were, you know, actually a lot of investors. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious.
1: It didn't feel like there were that many or like the angel groups. It felt like there was an angel group for every affinity, whether it was an alumni network or geography or whatever. But it felt like tech was much sexier, although like product, I felt like was easier to understand. I like had customers and I had sales and I had a tangible product, but that was not as sexy as like a SaaS company. Um, and so I think that In the pool of angel investors, there seemed to be a much larger focus on enterprise software companies than there were on uh, food companies and specifically allergy-friendly food companies.
0: When did you decide to expand outside the tri-state area? Sure. So I think this
1: was actually another kind of like serendipitous moment in the business. The Whole Foods region that we got acceptance in was the Southwest. We launched in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas. We didn't qualify as a nat- uh, a local brand in our home region of the Northeast because we manufacture our cookies on the West Coast. And so you had to be headquartered and manufacturer within a 90-mile radius. And so thankfully, the Southwest region buyer was willing to take a chance on us. But it, I feel like really helped our story because at that point, it's one thing to sell a premium natural food product in New York, LA, like a coastal city. Selling it in Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, I feel like was more of a a stronger proof point for us. And so we went into a region of Whole Foods and we went into Wegmans about a year after our launch. And thankfully those were going well. And that's when we really started looking at raising some more significant outside capital. And I was really like pounding the pavement on the angel network and talking to early stage uh, food funds. And that's the point where Marcy uh, Venture Partners got involved and we closed a round of funding of a million dollars in the summer of 2019
0: how do you think about since you also partake it's a very inclusive product i love it right i don't have any food allergies along with hundreds of thousands of others how do you think about the actual placement on shelf for partake
1: Sure, so when we're given the choice, we tip we tend to prefer to be in the conventional cookie aisle um competing against some of the the bigger folks. And so when you see us on shelf at somewhere like Target, we sit on the same aisle as Oreo and Chips ahoy. Um, I prefer to be in that set. I think oftentimes people have a, Negative connotation with allergy friendly or gluten free. And so someone like yourself might not be going to check out the gluten free cookie aisle because you might think they all taste like cardboard. Um, so if we can get eyes in the, the bigger, more busy cookie aisle, um, and then people can see our ingredients or get drawn in by our packaging, we think that we have a better shot and we think it better aligns with our brand proposition.
0: So when did Marcy get involved and how were you introduced to RC Venture Partners?
1: Sure. So Marcy, invested, we closed our seed in the summer in June of 2019. I met Marcy in the spring of 2018, so I was still selling cookies out of the car. So they, we were definitely too early for them, but they um, were believers in our mission and our products and and me, and were not turned off by the the lack of splashy launch. But I think instead appreciated the hustle mentality of growing the business brick by brick. And thankfully, our business continued to meet the metrics that I suggested we were, were going to happen. And so they came on board as our lead investor in our in our seed, and then. Uh, Reinvested at our Series A, and we were introduced by Mar- to Marcy um, through one of our friend uh, friends and family investors who's in the music business uh, had a, a connection to one of the partners at Marcy, and, and that's how we got introduced.
0: That's awesome. That's really cool. That's really cool. And so, how did COVID affect Partake?
1: It was interesting because I feel like there's a, a few pandemics going on in our country, and so. I was nervous at the start of COVID because we started 2020 in 350 stores and we finished the year in about 5,000. And so we had a lot of big growth planned and new distribution planned during COVID. Um, So I was nervous because a lot of our marketing strategy has hinged on in-person interactions, whether that's local festivals or demos. And then George Floyd got murdered. And then there was this like renewed interest or or new interest in supporting BIPOC and and Black-owned brands. And we saw a level of inbound attention, whether it was from invest potential investors or influencers or retailers, unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, so it was a really weird time in our business because this very unfortunate circumstance happened. Someone lost their life. This overdue conversation was happening. And then our business was benefiting. And so we thought about how could we use the circumstance to do better. Good. And so we were able to double down on some of our social mission efforts, um, a partnership that we have with historically black colleges and universities, a donation, um, a, a partnership that we have to donate product and, and monetary donations to a group called the Food Equality Initiative that feeds uh, food insecure families managing food allergies. And so we thought about how could we take this good that's come our way and put more good into the world. So 2020 was actually a banner year for our business.
0: Wow. So, yeah. I can only imagine because you take something that was incredibly overdue, obviously a tragedy in George Floyd losing their life, but that puts a lot of tension onto partake. However, you're using that, your voice, your platform in order to do good with these partnerships. So how did these partnerships work?
1: I think there, there's there been a plethora of them. So we had some increased distribution that was already planned. So we launched a Target nationally last year, expanded with Whole Foods, went into Sprouts, um, went into Fresh Market, expanded with Wegmans. So there was that. Um, then there's the social mission partnerships that we have. So the Food Equality Initiative. Um, during the month of June, and it was already planned. So that worked out really nicely, because it was our biggest month on e-com, probably in the history of our business. In June of 2020, we donated 10% of our, our revenue to the Food Equality Initiative. So we were able to feed over 5,000 families that summer. Um, and then we m- continued to make product donations throughout the year. And then um, kind of in my frustration with the lack of diversity in the food industry, and specifically in the natural food industry, which I think I saw in my experience at Coke, and I've seen as we've been trying to build our team at Partake thought about how could we touch potential job potential candidates at an earlier point in their life to give them the social capital and education they need about the CPG industry to be set up for success. And so we launched a program called the black futures and food and beverage fellowship. Uh, We partnered with five historically black colleges and universities last year, and we had seven fellows who joined us for an eight week curriculum that was really modeled after the Chobani incubator, which we were fortunate enough to be a part of culminated with a virtual career day where we had larger companies like Chobani and, um, Beyond Me and smaller companies like A Dozen Cousins and Pipcorn participate, and all of our fellows were able to either find a full-time job or an internship. And so we're launching our second cohort of that program, and it'll be doubled in size in terms of universities, Touched, and fellows, um, and it'll kick kick off next month.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. That's super inspiring. Just the way that you've been able to give back and also make the natural foods industry a lot more inclusive. That's just terrific. That's terrific. And D to C is that that was started in 2020. Is that right?
1: We started our online channel when we launched, but I will say we didn't focus a lot of efforts there. Um, last year we were not on Amazon. We've gotten on Amazon this year. And so our e-com is split between, um, our own partake foods website as well as Amazon. But the bulk of our business is definitely brick and mortar retail or kind of like alternative channel food service.
0: Cool. Cool. No, that's great. It's great. Um, I'd say, like, I think that what's also interesting too is you, you were omni-channel then from the very beginning. Is that right? Which is really fascinating because you know I've had on quite a few brands that started off digitally native, didn't start off um, brick and mortar. I mean, I would say like, what's maybe some advice that you might have for those that are thinking of starting a a food or beverage business when it when it makes sense to go omni channel from the very beginning or or try to do you know be digitally native and only digitally native
1: sure i think The thing that scares me about digitally native, I think, is how some of the advertising platforms through iOS updates can switch the game up on you very quickly. And, like, you can be in for a big surprise from a cost of acquisition perspective or or whatever it may be. Um, Because of my experience at Coca-Cola, I felt better equipped on the retail side of the business. And as much as I love a good online shopping experience, I don't think people are ever going to stop shopping in a store. And I think, um, you know, in showing to potential investors, our business, like, I think it's really healthy to be able to say that we can win across all channels, not that, you know, just certain people are buying us or just certain geographies, but really being able to show the breadth of how our brand can appeal to, to multiple consumer groups is really important to me. And as an in, inclusive brand I think it's really important that we're as accessible as possible and so when I think about some of the retailers that we partner with or that we're partnering with for 2022 it's important to me that people everywhere at an accessible price point can get our product and when we are on our website only because of fulfillment costs and shipping costs. We have to sell the product in larger numbers and not everybody can afford to spend $30 on cookies at one in one go. And so if somebody can go to their local retailer, no matter where they are in the country and pick up a box of cookies for three ninety nine, 99, I, I, I feel better about that.
0: I mean, th- those are all excellent points. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with John Sebastiani, who's the founder of crave And what he was saying, how for brands that don't start with like, you know, Omnichannel from the very beginning or in retail, they're not priced for wholesale. You know, they're only priced for digitally native, which is very different. It's, It's a bit of a different beast. And then once you want to expand to retail, then your pricey can get um, a little bit more complex. So I think maybe an advantage that, that you certainly had, and obviously you came from Coke, which is the king of, of retail. But I think like a advantage was you knew how to price for retail from the very beginning.
1: And I think that was one of the reasons we started small though, because I think Coke had a lot more sophistication than I had or have access to. And so I figured if I could start in a small set of stores, I could understand how often do we have to promote? What's our trade spend really going to look like? How much are distributors going to want to take? Are distributors running different deals with different customers? What does that look like? It gave me some time to kind of get my sea legs under me to understand how to price appropriately for, for different channels and, and for different pack sizes. And I think that was an advantage that we had from starting in a really small way
0: That makes a lot of sense i think being constrained sometimes can you know also give you so much opportunity because it allows you to go so much more with your dollar in a lot of ways or think creatively how to do so since you grew partake really fast i know it's still growing very very quickly how do you approach hiring and building the team for partake sure
1: so You know, I think I've seen really great examples and really poor examples of leadership along my journey. Um, And so I definitely try to model the former. I feel like a lot of my thoughts around building culture and leadership come from my six-year-old and like the sign she has around her school, like welcome, safety, respect. Like it doesn't, feel like rocket science necessarily. I have seen, though, as the team's gotten bigger, we're 15 people now, mostly hired during the pandemic. At the start of 2020, I was the only full-time employee. Like It's really important to walk the walk of the culture that you're trying to build and to be really deliberate about that and to make time for it. And I think that's a challenge as a founder and a leader, particularly when the business is growing quickly, because you want to focus on the retail sales and you want to focus on the operations, but you have to focus on your people. Um, and so for me, that's making the time to do that. It's investing in leadership training for myself, for our leadership team, for our junior employees to make sure that they're best equipped to do their jobs. It's creating an environment where people feel safe to, to celebrate the wins and to admit the losses and to show up as their full self. And so it just, uh, Trying to create a really happy place that I want to work at, um, but also understanding that that's going to take a lot of work, and that there's going to be speed bumps, and that it's going to take time to to really build that culture. But I think a lot of it starts with the founder when it's a, a founder led, founder run business. And so, you know, how do I show up in that way all the time? How do I show my vulnerability to the team? How do I also model like, you know, what customer service looks like, what excellence looks like, and, and just trying to be really co- cognizant of that.
0: What's the future of Partake? What is next on the horizon? Are you gonna go international? I
1: think there's an opportunity, too. I don't think this is necessarily the time that we're going to do it. Um, In our Series A, uh, Lotus Bakeries, um, the maker of the Biscoff cookie, came on board as an investor. And so I think we have partners around the table who understand how to grow internationally. Um, One of our board members and my former boss at Coke is the chief growth officer at Beyond Meat, and they did that beautifully. I don't know that we're there yet. We're in about 7,000 stores with our cookies. There's quite a bit of white space to tackle there. I think um, something else that Coke was a master at was price pack architecture. I feel like meeting our customers where they live and work and play in different pack sizes is really important to me to grow our brand awareness and to allow more people to try our products. So I think you'll see us pop up in places that aren't necessarily a traditional grocery store retailer. Um, So hope to grow distribution. Hope that you find us in other channels. We launched a line of baking mixes this year that are available just D to C, but we have some new products going into retail with some of our partners next year and some new distribution coming next year and hoping to continue to to serve our mission of making products that taste good, that have ingredients you can understand that are allergy friendly and doing good while we
0: do that. What is one thing that you would change about the fundraising process and, and venture capital?
1: I would make it more transparent. It feels like a lot of like, I'm very much a tell it like it is person And like the how I mentioned earlier that no one ever tells you no, like, I wish people would just say what they were actually thinking. But it seems like a lot of like power dynamics and like games that people play. And like, I wish people would just be more forthcoming in their intentions and and their like likes or dislikes and just like a bit more transparency.
0: I agree with you. Because I mean, I guess going back to your original one, an investor never actually really told you what actually the reason why they pass, which would be actually really helpful. So, um, what's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: I will say my daughter was giving me grief the other day about the large uh, stack of books piling up on my nightstand. I think Partake has kept me so busy. I haven't read as much as I would like, um, but there's a book that was written by the founder of uh, It Cosmetics. They had a big exit to L'Oreal. Um, Jamie Kern Lima is her name, and she had a book called Believe It, and it talked about her journey. and I think oftentimes this entrepreneurship journey is so glorified and like made to sound so sexy. And She talked about like the grind and the empowerment syndrome and the insecurities and a lot of the things that people don't talk about along their journey, and so I really appreciated that, and I, I thought it was fantastic for me personally and professionally.
0: No, that's great. That's great. I'm really excited to add that to our book list. We, I don't think anyone's brought up believe it yet. So, and that sounds like an awesome read. It's like an awesome read. What is the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: I think that. There's a couple. One was Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea. I don't know that he even remembers telling me this, but I was at the point where I had like put in my resignation. So I knew when I was leaving Coke and I had our product and I went to him with all these questions about like what distributor and how do I know who my consumer is? And he was just like, just get started. You'll learn so much from like talking to your customers and just taking baby steps in the right direction. Nothing's going to be perfect from day one. And so I think even now in our business, like as we launch new products and as we go into other channels, like just taking that advice and just taking baby steps, like it's not going to be perfect from day one and learning from the, the missteps I think has been really valuable. And then I think one thing I've kind of oh learned God. by myself over time is to go where you're celebrated. I think I got so down on myself from all the pseudo knows that I got on the fundraising journey that I like really villain villainized like venture capital and raising money. And then I met Marcy and then I met some of the other phenomenal investors we have. And I realized that venture capital isn't a bad thing. It could actually open your eyes up and give you the resources you need to like grow a really impactful, amazing business. And if you work with people who actually value you and your company and your mission, it's not necessarily a negative thing.
0: What's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Don't listen to everybody. It's amazing um, how everyone has an opinion. Most of the people have never done it and will like tell you like, very deliberately exactly how you should do it but they've never done it and so don't get me wrong I have informational calls all the time with people who have done it and done it well and I take those tidbits of advice but then I also go with my gut and I go with the data that I have because just what because something worked for someone else doesn't mean it's the right or wrong answer for you and so like trust yourself because nobody knows your business better than you do
0: Denise this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for your time
1: I appreciate you having me this was such a wonderful chat thank you so much
0: and there you have it. It was amazing having Denise on the show. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.